I believe in the integrity of the system and, 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 and the right decisions to be reached, but it's truly a tragedy. Uh, it's not a tragedy for the community, it's a tragedy for the victims. But we hope that um, something good will come out of this, whether it's a statewide initiative or a nationwide initiative to, to, to take further actions to protect the innocent children. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, I'm coming to you from Massachusetts, and I appreciate your joining us this week. And this is Craig Williams in sunny Southern California after a brief hiatus. Glad to be back. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, I know you do too. You write some blogs. I write a blog called Law Sites, which is at lawsitesblog.com, and also Media Law, another blog. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. You can find out more about Above All Legal at AboveAllLegal.com. And Firm Manager from LexisNexis at MyFirmManager.com slash LTN. Well, it's a case that has literally rocked Penn State University to its core. It's also caused the governor of Pennsylvania to call for a change in the law to make sure that reports of alleged child sexual abuse get to governmental authorities. Uh, of course, we're talking about former Penn State football defensive coordinator Jerry Sandusky. He is now facing 40 charges of molesting and raping boys between 1994 and 2009, some of the alleged crimes uh, supposedly occurring right on campus. Well, some college officials are also accused of covering up the assaults and of lying to a grand jury about the following uh about the following uh, eyewitness account, according to the grand jury report in 2002, a graduate assistant allegedly saw Sandusky raping a boy in the showers of a Penn State athletics facility. Uh, that graduate student, Mike McQuarrie, uh, informed Joe Paterno, the team's legendary coach, about what he saw the next day. Uh, Paterno then alerted his boss, the school's athletic director, who also told the university's senior vice president for finance and business uh, but no report was ever made to police, and there was no attempt to identify the child. And and there's where things start to get a little bit murky. Uh, McCreary has come out and said that uh, he actually did inform the police, and um, McCreary told the coach Paterno the child was being raped, while Paterno and his supervisors claimed the severity of the situation was not made clear. Sandusky's responded to the charges last night. Here's just some of what he had to say in the interview with NBC's Bob Costas. Mr. Sandusky, there's a 40-count indictment. The grand jury report contains specific detail. There are multiple accusers, multiple eyewitnesses to various aspects of the abuse. A reasonable person says where there's this much smoke, there must be plenty of fire. What do you say? I say that I am innocent of those charges. Innocent? Completely innocent and falsely accused in every aspect? Well, I could say that, you know, I have done some of those things. I have horsed around with kids. I, I have showered after workouts. I, I have hugged them and I've, I have touched their leg without intent of 
sexual contact. But um, uh, so if if you look at it that way, uh, there are things that that uh, wouldn't uh, you know would be accurate. Are you denying that you had any inappropriate sexual contact with yes, any of these underage boys? Yes, I am. Well, Bob, there's so many legal issues and so many questions surrounding this case, so let's get right to our discussion. Joining Lawyer to Lawyer today is Professor Marcy Hamilton. Professor Hamilton holds the Par R. Berkeley Chair in Public Law at the Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University. Marcy has served in Constitutional and Federal Law Council in many important clergy sex abuse cases and has testified before numerous state legislatures regarding the elimination of statutes of limitations for child sex abuse. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Marcy. Thanks for having me. Also here today, uh, Craig is an attorney who practices law uh, right uh, in the heart of the scandal. Uh, Philip Masorti is a senior partner at Masorti Sullivan PC in State College, Pennsylvania. His areas of practice include criminal defense, family law, divorce, custody, and child support. Philip has also been named a Pennsylvania super lawyer for criminal defense. Uh, and he's joining us today uh, from just outside a courtroom, uh, as I understand it. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Philip. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Philip, just since you're right there uh, in in uh, State College and so close to Penn State, let, let's start with you and, and just ask you uh, how this how this scandal is affecting uh, State College and, and the legal community at State College in particular. Well, I can tell you the mood is grim. Um, there's a pall cast over Happy Valley, uh, and it's... Uh, Tragic, and uh, you know, it just seems like the uh, it seems like the breath has been taken out of the community. Um, I have a wife and children here, of course, and um, it's devastating. It's catastrophic. It's devastating. Uh, we, you know, the cover up is the crimes. The, the crimes are graphic. The cover up's awful, and uh, the whole thing's a catastrophe. And it doesn't appear to be getting better uh, anytime soon. The grand jury presentment is graphic and detailed. The witnesses that they've identified in there from the football coaches at Central Mountain High School and the wrestling coaches and the janitor who was a Korean War veteran and of course Michael McQuarrie, a grad assistant, all on its face, all, all on their face appear to be very credible, exhibiting the emotions that a, a man would have when experiencing or observing these types of things. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's just a mess. I mean, it really is. A, it's, it's devastating the community and, and, uh, you know, I think the recovery will not only for the community, but for the victims, will be a long road. Marcy, you've taken a look at the uh, at the grand jury report. What stands out from your perspective in that report? Well, I think one of the most fascinating aspects is that the only reason any of this abuse ever came to light was because of two mothers. Uh, the first reports that came out were in 1998, and it was a mother uh, who contacted university police and uh, said that she was concerned that Sandusky had taken a shower with her son. Uh, and there was an investigation. It was shut down. But, you know, the source of the report was the mom. In 2008, which was really the start of where we are today with the grand jury report, uh, that once again was a mom who was concerned about activity with Sandusky and her son. And she contacted her school, uh, where Sandusky was an assistant coach, a uh, volunteer assistant. And she reported to the school, and then the school was a mandatory reporter, and they reported it. So, you know, one of, one of the sub-stories that really hasn't been told yet is how the mothers were protecting their children as much as they could, but unfortunately, the system was not. Well, on that point, Marcy, what, if I understood the first time, the first report by a mother was was to the police, uh, and 
from what I've heard about it, it sounded like the police kind of let that drop and 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 never followed up on it themselves or notified uh, any uh, university officials. Yeah, that, that, that was really, I mean, this happens all the time, sadly, is that, you know, a child comes forward with something that's not, that is troubling. And when it gets into the system, either uh, the child is not believed or the, uh, the forces behind uh, the alleged perpetrator are so strong that they overcome the child's voice. I mean, we don't know why that investigation was closed, but it was closed by both the university and the district attorney's office. Philip, this this for me harkens back a little bit to the disaster that happened in California with the McMartin preschool trial, where we spent seven years investigating child abuse allegations and uh, ultimately no convictions uh, came out of it. And later on, we found out that the mother who reported the uh, child abuse incident was um Certainly a, a situation where the mother uh, was mentally deranged and the child had actually been abused by the father. Uh, are we looking at anything like that here, or do you think this is definitely something that uh, is going to hold water as time moves on? Well, I don't think the mothers are at all deranged. Uh, I, I, th- I think that the fact that the different mothers from different periods of t- time not knowing one another making similar uh, comments uh, to the police uh, I think would negate any any type of delusional or 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 or, or a, a mindset that they're out for pecuniary gain. Uh, I, I don't think it's unnatural for mothers to be the initial um, uh, the initial reporters. I mean, it, it, these children don't go to the police themselves. They confide in their parents. I have a son, an 11 year old son, and a four year old daughter, and and and. It just seems natural that that a, that a child would 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 explain these things to the parents uh, first, and that the parents would most likely be the people to come forward. I mean, to expect a twelve or thirteen or fourteen year old uh, boy in this case to go to the police before going to her parents, I think, is counterintuitive. So the fact that the mothers came forward, I think, that's reasonable and appropriate. The Central Mountain School System uh, did take affirmative action uh, when when the, when the football coach and the wrestling coach saw some unusual activities. I think that Jerry Sandusky that's in the presentment, I believe. So. Uh, I don't think the mothers are deranged. I don't think there's an interest in pecuniary gain. You know, settlements will occur, no doubt in this case, probably with the with responsible parties. But I, I, this, I, I do not think, and, and, and I would very, I would doubt seriously that at the end of this uh, investigation, that we're going to find that, that people are motivated by money. I think it's parents. And I'm a parent, um, just doing the right thing by their children and trying to protect them. Regrettably, the system failed them to some extent, but. Um, you know, the, the thing is, is perhaps this case and the notoriety uh, uh, can 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 assist in, in making sure that these types of things don't happen again, maybe statewide and perhaps nationwide to a certain extent. I mean, that's what we're hoping for. Well, I, on that point, I mean, let me ask Marcy, uh, let me ask you, what should have happened here? How, what, what kinds of red flags should have gone up, and, and how should people have responded? And we talk about how they, they, they didn't respond, but what should have happened here? Well, what should have happened is that the investigation in 1998 should have been more far-reaching. And so instead of focusing solely on uh, the, the person in the uh, uh, grand jury report referred to as victim six, uh, there should have been also contact with the, the report calls them BK, uh, now in the military. They, they should have taken it more seriously. And what, what's concerning is that you have allegations of showering and touching and, and inappropriate activity on campus. 
Uh, but And then you also know that this child came through the Second Mile program, and it was set up in 1977. So if they're getting a report in 1998, you have 21 years of concern. And so I'm surprised there wasn't more interest in doing a more in-depth investigation. But part of it is that, you know, we for so long we've been focused on just the perpetrator. Uh, we didn't start looking really seriously at this kind of cover-up mentality uh, really until the Boston Globe broke the Catholic Church's cover-up story 10 years ago in um, Boston. Once you start looking to the cover-up aspect, or at least the inability to get the story outside of an institution, uh, you start asking questions like, well, if they knew about two kids in 98, why didn't they think about the whole institution of Second Mile and how it was being operated? Phil, so I, I wanted to ask you uh, what you thought. You're a criminal defense lawyer, and uh, you know we, we played a, a, a clip uh, earlier uh, from uh, Bob Costas' interview uh, with uh, Sandusky, and, and uh, you know his 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 lawyer uh, Joey Amendola uh, suggested that interview. Uh, how do, how does that strike you as a defense tactic in this case? I mean, what's your reaction as a defense lawyer to uh, Sandusky giving that interview to Costas with the blessing of his lawyer? Well, I mean, that's all essentially going to be testimony that could be used against him. I, I think there's statements from Jerry Sandusky that t- his responses can be used in court in Pennsylvania. So I think you have a situation where the attorney that presented his client's testimony, um, was he prepared? Did he make unequivocal and absolute denials? Did he sound convincing? You know, was his voice, was his demeanor, I know it was by telephone, all those things that somebody would want to, the things that you would look at with respect to what he said and how that struck you as a listener. I mean, nothing made me feel warm and toasty. And I think the general consensus, general consensus is, not I think it is, is that it was, it was, it was horrible. I'm not going to question uh, another attorney's judgment and his motivation. Perhaps he has a plan that may ultimately result in his client's acquittal, but I think Jerry Sandusky's uh, uh, speaking on, on uh, at least the way it came off, was a mistake, and, uh, and I think it may prove harmful uh, ultimately. But, I mean, there seems to be enough evidence in the grand jury presentment with some credible witnesses where I don't know if it's going to make much of a difference. Phil, we know you have to leave early to get to court, so we'd like to wrap up with you and get your, Philip, we'd like to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, Philip, if you would, please uh, give us your contact information and your final thoughts. Sure. My contact information is uh, okay. Philip Mazzorti. It's PMM at statecollegelawyers.com. And my phone number is 814-234-9500 to the office. And uh, I, would, I would simply want to reiterate with this number of victims, uh, with, again, a graduate assistant, a wrestling coach, a football coach, and a janitor who was a Korean War veteran, all exhibiting signs of some emotional trauma having observed these things. Uh, the, 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 uh, the victims whose stories um, are consistent, the, the methods are consistent with how Mr. Sandusky was grooming and testing the organization, the second mile itself, as we know that, the, that sometimes these people with these sexual dysfunctions, they became physicians of power and trust and youth organizations, and there's a certain prestige that Jerry was able to exert. Uh, and then you have the gifts and, and those types of things. I mean, it's just, there's just so much. I would, I would tell you, I guess I would leave by this, I'd rather be prosecuting this case than defending it for sure. And, uh, and, and from, the, from the view, prima facie, on its outside, without hearing any evidence, without reviewing any discovery, just reviewing the presentment, I think this is going to be an awful case. 
uh, and and I don't expect it to end well. And um, I believe in the integrity of the system and, 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 and the right decisions to be reached. But it's truly a tragedy. Uh, it's not a tragedy for the community. It's a tragedy for the victims. But we hope that um, something good will come out of this, whether it's a statewide initiative or a nationwide initiative to, to, to take further actions to protect the innocent children. Again, I'm a parent. To think that my 10-year-old and 11-year-old boys could be subjected to something like this and then for it to be covered up, um, I mean, it's just very disturbing. It's deeply, deeply disturbing. And, um, you know, we're all hoping that, the, that these kids come forward, that they, that they, that they have the courage to testify. I mean, there's humiliating things that they have to go to testify to under oath about ejaculating, erections, showers, inappropriate touching, pressure exerted from somebody who they adored and probably loved in, 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 the, in the personality of Jerry Sandusky. It's, it, there's just nothing good. Nothing good's going to come of this, except possibly some healing and some some changes in the law. That's what I hope. Well, Philip, thank you very much for being on the show today. We understand that uh, you have to leave to go to court. And That's as true. My day job's right outside, so <laughs> I'm going to step into good. the courtroom. Thank you very much. Well, it's time for us to take a quick break. We'll have much more on the Penn State scandal when Laura Lawyer returns. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge or to learn more, Visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. This is Kate Kenny at Legal Talk Network, and I'm talking with attorney Brian Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal, an innovative new online legal job board. 
Brian, how is Above All Legal different from the other online legal job boards? There are really three things that set us apart from other job boards. Uh, First of all, we're dedicated strictly to the legal professional. Secondly, we're very a cost-effective solution for law firms who want to post jobs or search our uh, resume database. And the third thing is, because we have a prior experience in legal staffing and recruiting, we know not only where to find the best legal professionals, uh, but we also know how to effectively bring them together in a very uh, user-friendly job work. We've been talking to attorney Brian Manginas, co-founder of Above All Legal. Check it out at AboveAllLegal.com. That's AboveAllLegal.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, this is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are joined today uh, by uh, uh, Attorney uh, Philip Masorti, who, who just left us to, uh, at the break to go into court. Uh, and uh, we continued to talk with Professor Marcy Hamilton of the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law uh, in New York City. And Marcy, I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, I know that you've you've written extensively uh, and very much uh, involved in in the issue of uh, uh, how uh, how the law should respond to uh, child sexual abuse uh, and uh, I mean in particular in your book uh, you have a book justice denied what America must do to protect its children uh, so <laughs> let me put it to you what what must America did it do I mean what how, how should the law be changed uh, to Perhaps uh, you know, if not, if not, prevent, uh, minimize uh, these kinds of cases going forward. Well, when I was, I first became involved in uh, the clergy sex abuse issues because my area of specialty is church state issues. I was working on First Amendment issues, and I noticed that there were all of these meritorious cases where you would even have the perpetrator admitting he had done the abuse and the institution admitting they knew about it, and the case never went anywhere. Uh, and it, I just, it, it became something of a, a cause for me because it was just so outrageous that these artificial time barriers were consistently being used to protect the predator who could then go on to the next child and keep the victim out of court. So I have, uh, over the years, come to the conclusion that we need to do two things. We need first just to eliminate statutes of limitations in this one arena, child sex abuse. Uh, because the victims need decades to come forward, and uh, typically uh, they don't come forward as soon as they did in the Penn State case. So we need to do that going forward. But we also have a real need for relieving the pressure that is now being exerted in our society by this huge number of victims who have never been able to name their perpetrator. They know they were abused. They are typically suffering in, in terrible ways that are costing all of us and them uh, terribly, but they can't do anything in terms of getting justice because we've cut them out of the courthouse. So it's my view we need to enact a window, as we call it, 
uh, in each state, uh, which would just say, okay, so if your statute of limitations expired already, you still get to go to court for two years, and you still have to prove your case up. You still have all the burdens of proof. You still have to have facts and evidence, but at least you get to get into court. And uh, we've done that in California and Delaware. It's been passed in Guam. It's very close to being passed in Hawaii. I think we need to do that in Pennsylvania. And that window starts to run when? Uh, well, it starts to run whenever the law is enacted. So as soon as uh, the law goes into effect, you have a two-year uh, opportunity to go forward. So for Delaware, it was year 2007 to 2009. I see. So almost like almost like an amnesty from a statute of limitations. It sense. is, and it, but but that's it. That the only thing you're being relieved of is the this artificial deadline of when you get to go to court. All the rest that you need, which is the evidence and the proof and and the the uh, levels of proof, you still have to show up with that. So it really doesn't change the um, the fairness of the system. But what it does is it gives these victims the ability to name their perpetrators. Uh, and the thing that perpetrators thrive on is anonymity. So if, you, if they can be named in these civil lawsuits brought even after the statute of limitations expired, you can really educate the public, the parents, the kids about who really could be a problem out there, and they didn't have any idea. What, as, as we eliminate these statutes of limitation, as you go forward on that basis, what, uh, what injury do the uh, the people that are accused of these crimes let's just not let's assume that they're just accused at this point um, what injuries did they suffer as a result of the the loss of uh, the safety of a of a statute of limitations well what happens is typically uh, that windows are passed in states where the criminal statute of limitations is passed and so you cannot criminally convict them. Once the criminal statute expires, it's over. Uh, and so you really your only shot at identifying these perpetrators is through the, the civil system. In California, uh, we learned the identities of 300 perpetrators we'd never heard of before, uh, just through the civil window. And uh, you know, the, the lawsuits were against both the institutions that created the conditions for the abuse and also the individual perpetrators. Well, you know, when you talk about the conditions for abuse, I mean, you, you talked earlier about the, the the Catholic Church scandals, and and probably one of the one of the hallmarks of, of of those scandals was was that the Catholic Church for so long seemed to be beyond reproach, uh, and that uh, you know uh, priests and religious figures were held up to such high esteem. And here we have another situation at Penn State where uh, these you know some of the people uh, alleged to, to be involved in this were were held in in very high esteem. Uh, uh, you know, big people on campus. Uh, is there a way that the law can can get at that? Uh, how how do we how do we address the sort the sort of culture that lets lets people have this kind of power uh, and 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 immunity almost uh, from detection? Well, you know, I, you know, I call this the problem of uh, powerful men in, in powerful places, and uh, whether it's the church, and, and not just the, the Catholic Church, but many religious organizations, or it's Penn State, uh, you know, there is this this kind of sense among some that they can solve a lot of problems that maybe they don't know that much about. And so if they just tell Sandusky, you better stop doing this or get off campus, uh, you know, that means don't do it anywhere else either. 
Uh, and the same thing happened in the Catholic Church. You know, you say to the priest, come on, you got to stop doing this, and uh, I'm your superior, I'm telling you what to do, and of course the, the compulsive child predator goes back and, and finds another child. So part of what has to happen is the public needs to come to understand who the perpetrators are. They're very, they, they tend to be nice people, uh, trustworthy people, folks you would love to have your kids spend time with. So when they call and say, can I take your kid to the football game this weekend? You're like, oh, of course. Uh, so that's one thing. It's not stranger danger. It's not even creepy. It's someone who you trust. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing, kind of a public education aspect. But the other part of it is we've got to do a much better job of mandatory reporting and mandating reporting. So, you know, what happened in the Penn State case is, is um, kind of typical in the sense that the answer from Joe Paterno at first was, I did what I was supposed to do, and he did. The law said he just had to tell a superior. So he tells a superior, and uh, that's supposed to have solved the issue. Uh, and basically, in a large institution, he was following the bureaucratic grid. Uh, and then his superiors reported up to, to the president, and uh, as has happened in other institutions, the information never got out of the system. And so then what happens is you get this vicious cycle within the system because nobody has reported it to the authorities to break it open, which is what finally happened in the Penn State case. But until the authorities can lay out the facts and the public can be warned about all of the ins and outs of what's been going on, until then, when it's stuck inside the system, the perpetrator just gets more and more opportunities at children because nobody is talking to anybody in a way that creates accountability or answers or publicity. So, uh, you know, one of my goals is uh, for every state to have mandatory reporting of all adults who know about child sex abuse. Uh, through a state hotline that is trained to figure out what's the information and what do I do with it, where does it need to go, child protective services, uh, foster care services, the police, uh, and get this information in the system. And institutions need this. They need to vent this information because so long as they hold it in, the cycle poisons their own system. Well, as as we go through this whole process, um what kind of things do you expect to occur as we go through uh, the litigation? Are we going to be hearing, are we going to be having a trial shortly? Are we going to be having witness statements? Is this going to be another uh, huge media circus in terms of the trial? Will it be in Penn State, State College? Will they move it for another state or another place? How, how do you see this litigation proceeding, this criminal work? Well, you know, I think a lot of people learned, a lot of judges learned from the O.J. Simpson trial that a judge uh, presiding over this kind of a trial needs to keep a very tight rein on the, the media circus around it. So, you know, I would be surprised if it turned into a media circus. I, I'm assuming whatever judge has it is going to control that and make sure the decorum of the courtroom stays and the focus is on justice. You know, it will take a while before they'll be able to get to the point of having a trial because you have to have the uh, preceding um, various procedures and motions and back and forth. But uh, I think it would be unfortunate if this didn't go to trial. Uh, in, instead of a uh, plea deal or whatever, it would be good for the American public and especially Pennsylvania to learn the facts of what happened when, who did what, and how were our children endangered at each stage of the way. And 
what happens then is the more of those facts that come out, uh, in all likelihood, the more survivors are going to come forward. So, you know, as I mentioned before, the second mile was established in 1977. Hard to believe that nothing was happening until all of a sudden in 1998. That's 21 years. Um, those who go after children don't start in their mid-years. They usually start relatively young, and uh, they don't age out, and so they might be abusing children into their 80s. So uh, there, there are probably a variety of other survivors involved. Who knows if there are other perpetrators involved? Uh, that That's not unusual in these sorts of circumstances. Uh, but the more information that comes out and the more it educates parents especially to be really careful about their vulnerable children uh, even with the the guy they really trust, uh, because they think he's so nice, uh, you know, we'll we'll have we'll have gotten farther along. I, you know, after Sandusky's um, statements to uh, Bob Costas on NBC on Monday night, he almost proved up a, a good chunk of the allocations involving inappropriate contact uh, contact. So uh, the trial, in a, my assumption, is going to have to focus on the sexual assaults and the um, uh, and de- uh, deviate sexual intercourse. A real, real quick question because we're almost out of time. But I, I know that you you alluded to the kind of the constitutional issues in in, in the church cases, since there's a mm-hmm. you know, freedom of religion issue, I guess, uh, being being uh, raised there. Are, are there any constitutional issues in the state college case? Well, there'll be due process issues they'll try to raise. Um, yeah. But n- nothing like the barriers that the churches try to use right. to avoid being either in a trial or, or civil lawsuits, and, and and they really aren't very successful in those. But they dramatically delay trials and and with all the motions going back and forth on the constitutional issues. Well, we are actually just about out of time, and we do we do uh, always like to give our guests an opportunity to have the final thought, as we did earlier uh, with Philip, and uh, we would invite you to do that uh, now, uh, Marcy, also, and, and if you'd like to let our listeners know uh, how they can follow up with you or find out more about your work, uh, we will invite you to do that as well. Sure. I, I, you know, what I'd really like to say is uh, I really admire the survivors who've come forward. It's tough to come forward at their ages. They're in their 20s, they're young, uh, and they've got a lot of guts to have said what they said and to have provided the information that was needed in the investigation. And for all those survivors out there uh, who are who have not come forward, who can't come forward, uh, you know, just they, they need to keep taking care of themselves. I, that my main concern is with the welfare of the survivors and uh, our ability to help them. Uh, because this is a really difficult thing. And once this information comes out, any survivor that's not part of the grand jury report, uh, but part of the problem, uh, can suffer anew. And so I, I wish them all uh, protection, and I hope they're getting all the help they need. Um, I can be reached uh, either via email at hamilton02 at aol.com or uh, via my cell, which is 215 353 8984. And um, I now have uh, a Twitter account where I am posting every uh, everything I'm writing about on this case and on the Catholic Church cases and on the Latter-day Saints cases on a daily basis. So uh, I hope they'll come and see me there too. By the way, I think it's, uh, I think Marcy is Marcy underscore Hamilton on Twitter. It's Marcy, M-A-R-C-I underscore Hamilton on Twitter. 
We'll find you. But I also, I was, uh, was earlier today looking at, at your website at Cardozo, and you've got a lot of great uh, information up there as well, uh, your profile page there with articles and excerpts and, uh, and whatnot. So I encourage listeners to check that out as well. It's all there. I, keep, I try to keep it updated. Well, thank you very much, Marcy, for being on the show. And uh, Bob, let's get your final thoughts about this disaster. It, it is it is a disaster. Craig, this is, you know, it, it, it's awful. And, and, and the fact that this, you know, I mean, obviously uh, people are, uh, are presumed uh, innocent uh, until proven otherwise, but the allegations are horrible. And, and the fact that this may be far more widespread, as, as our guests alluded to uh, earlier, uh, is really troubling. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I hope we're not just seeing the tip of the iceberg here. I'm sorry about uh, as much as we've seen. Yeah, and to realize that uh, some of these allegations may go back into the mid-70s, uh, you know, that's a little bit frightening because it's probably just the tip of the iceberg of what we've seen so far. And as this develops, I think we're going to see more people coming forward over the years. And I think the most disappointing thing is that uh, we have, you know, a, a wonderful college program, a, a great uh, college coach and Joe Paterno. Um, that has been just completely smeared by uh, one person who's, uh, you know, just been self-indulgent at the expense of what is going to be a, a millions and millions of dollars in a lot of people's lives. Uh, people that, that conduct or that, that commit these kind of crimes really don't realize the far-reaching effects of what they do. Well, Bob, uh, I guess that wraps it up for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember now you can get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows in iTunes. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.